think my intimate gift is for the hairy dog. <laughs> yeah, not for you, for me. That's what I call it. Oh. Standard issue for all women. Hello, and welcome to episode 248 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan, and I was worried I was going to get hit by a goose, but I was not hit by a goose. Well, that is good news. It's great news, isn't it? Basically, we went to Wales for the weekend, and we went on a zip wire. I went on a zip wire. And I was very excited, but I was very worried because all I could think about was that video of supermodel Fabio getting hit by a goose on a roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen that? No, no goes, I mean, I'm sad. <laughs> oh, I'll send it to you. He goes up on the roller coaster. He's like opening the new roller coaster and everyone's like, ooh, Fabio's here, male supermodel Fabio, and they trek off. And then when it films him coming back in, he's just covered in blood and feathers. Oh, there's been a bird strike. <laughs> it broke his nose. So anyway, I said to Gary, I said, I'm a bit worried that I'm going to get hit by a goose. And he went, I don't think you're going to get hit by a goose. I was like, I don't think Fabio thought he was going to get hit by a goose. How big was the zip wire? It was amazing. It was in two parts. It was really high up in uh, the lovely Welsh mountains. It wasn't the Snowdonia one. It wasn't Velocity. It was called the Phoenix. And it was adrenaline pinching. It was it was really, really good fun. Loved it. Did you shit your pants a bit? Or like not, not that kind of frightening? No, at the top, Gary went, smell you later. And I went, you might smell me halfway <laughs> down. Uh, but <laughs> that didn't that didn't happen. <laughs> No, it was it was real. Like it made me really giddy. It was very excited. Aww. Big success all round. I think anything when you haven't shit yourself by the end of it is very Particularly successful. Particularly when you're prone to shitting yourself, like I am. So you've got form, mate. <laughs> and when I say you, Mickey, I was very much narrowing it, yeah. down on you. Yeah. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I thought the leftovers had become real at the weekend. Who disappeared? My mother. Oh no. My sister was moving else, so. I was helping her and on the way going back home I was going to pass a tip so I was taking stuff that needed to go into the to the tip. So we come out of my sister's house and walk down her pathway. She lives in a cul-de-sac so then there's like five cars parked next to each other. So this whole journey would take 30 seconds at most. It's a few, maybe a hundred yards at most. Mm. And I go to the back of my car and I put the last bit of rubbish in. And my mum is walking behind me and I close the boot and I turn around and she's not there. She's just not there. And I was like, what's happened? So I immediately thought she'd fallen. So I went round to the front of the cars in case she was on the pavement and had fallen and I couldn't see her. She wasn't there. So I started shouting and she didn't respond because she's quite little and I thought maybe I just can't see her. And Sorry. she didn't respond. <laughs> is she a borrower? And <laughs> no, but I mean, she's really little. So maybe she was then she'd gone round the back of the cars or yeah. something when I'd wandered around the front. Yeah. Hannah's mum is Mrs. Pepperpot, Jen. <laughs> Just teeny tiny. And I knew that she hadn't had enough time to go back to my sister's house, knock on the front door and my sister come and answer it and come back in. So I knew she had to be somewhere within this really small space. But yet she wasn't there. And I genuinely thought. She's been taken up. There's no other explanation for where the fuck she is. She's been taken up. And I started to have a little panic that the rapture had happened and I'd been left behind on earth. And then a, a car door opened and she put her head out and she said, what are you doing? I said, what am I doing? What are you doing? That's not my fucking car. She just, 
She's just got into a different car. <laughs> oh, oh, Mary. It was just sitting there waiting. <laughs> That's amazing. Lovely stuff. Yeah. You would be left behind if the rapture happened, though, Hannah. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I know I have accepted that, but... I'm Jen Offord, and I am within spitting distance of finishing Couch to 5K. I'm not going to lie to you, this is the third time I've tried to do Couch to 5K, and this will be the first time I complete it, if indeed I, I mean, do. I mean, if it is literally spitting distance, Jen, I'd just go and get it done now. <laughs> See you later, guys. <laughs> I've finished week seven. I've got two more weeks to do. Basically, weeks eight and nine are just a formality. So, you know, effectively I've done it, but I would like to actually do it. I ran for 90 seconds longer than was required of me this morning, just because I was listening to Roachford and having a lovely time. <laughs> so, just kept going. We're running like partridge. Your fog Amazing. lights are on. Yeah. <laughs> your fog lights are on. Well, congratulations, Jenks. And I do not wish to piss on your parade or anyone's parade, but I do have to say that when you've completed Couch to 5K, the idea is you do still do more running. It's not no. like that's all you're running done forever. No, but I t- I, the reason I did it, is because obviously I had COVID last summer. It did take me quite a long time to recover and I had quite a lot of time off exercise. And then as has been much discussed on this podcast, I had a bad chest infection at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. And so I was just like, I just wanted to get my fitness levels up and I wanted to start really slowly and gradually. But what I will say about Couch to 5K is not only can you listen to our dear leader, the boss, Sarah Millican, spurring you on, to greatness it's really well done i genuinely think that like anyone could go in at beginner level and end up being able to run hannah dunleavy i think that gauntlet fell at your feet sorry sorry did you say something Mickey? sorry i was <laughs> i'd zoned out <laughs> i like running i think it's really good it's good for the brain particularly in this weather when you're getting some sunshine oh it was lovely absolutely lovely this morning with added roachford hello mm-hmm Coming up, I talk to Liv Hennessy and Lisa Sperling, writer and director of the new play Vardy v Rooney, The Wagatha Christie Trial, about the court case that gripped the nation and a sobering tale of modern times. I'm chatting to the woman I think of whenever I use a hand dryer. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I think of her every time I use a Dyson Airblade. Yep, and that is the fantastic Zoe Lyons. I told her that I thought about her every time I dried my hands and she laughed a lot. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm talking Wimbledon, golf and more, and in Rated or Dated, oh dear God, what have I done? <laughs> We're watching 1998's The Butcher Boy. But first, verify us, give us intimate gifts and take us to the hairy dog. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we are delighted we can finally put our white shorts in the bin. I mean, I did that years ago, mate, but uh, if you'd like to give me more information about why it's no longer illegal. (laughs) It's not a crime anymore to ditch the white shorts. You're correct, Hannah. I love that you were ahead of the curve. But yeah, the the England women's team, the England women's football team, as they're about to go into the World Cup this year, don't have to wear white shorts and their new kit has navy blue shorts with an away kit of light blue all over, like a... Like a sexy onesie. Not sexy, Mickey. No. Like a like a lovely onesie. Good. Good for them. Why would they not want to wear white shorts? Why were white shorts a bad idea? I don't know. Why would white shorts be a bad idea for women? Why? I don't understand. Good choice if you're roller skating with dogs, though. That is true. And I, for one, would love to see more of that in the World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking of nonsense. 
The whole world, it seems, loves a celebrity court case. Oh, yeah. Example coming up in this very podcast as Jen is talking about Rooney v. Vardy. More play fodder on the way with the trial of Donald J. Trump. Although, if and when that trial happens, it's going to have to be very daft indeed to be anywhere near as enjoyable as the trial of Gwyneth Paltrow, which ended this week with Paltrow being awarded a dollar. As if the outcome was important, we'd all already won. (laughs) Bit of background for anyone who's been paying attention to important things like what's going on with Brexit or in France or with the cost of living crisis. Or indeed any news story in which someone wasn't asked if they've ever bought a personal intimate present for Taylor Swift. Please tell me it wasn't Paltrow who got asked that question. I hope it was the other guy. (laughs) She did get asked that question. So... Terry Sanderson, a 76-year-old retired optometrist, sued Paltrow for $300,000, which is pretty low stakes, Mm. all things considered, after an incident in 2016 which he claimed resulted when she skied into him at a Deer Valley ski resort in Utah and left him with concussion, four broken ribs, a brain injury and, according to one witness, an inability to enjoy wine tastings. (laughs) Oh, the humanity! (laughs) Paltrow countersued for $1 and attorney's fees. A little bit of legal knowledge for you here, Mickey. In Utah, the downhill skier has the right of way. And by that, it means the skier at the bottom... You know, further oh, okay. down the hill. As if, I was like, as if, what's an uphill skier? What's an uphill skier? Yeah, that's life, Mickey. That's what uphill uh, skiing uh, is. Sisyphus, yeah. But Paltrow and Sanderson both claimed that they were the downhill skier. The trial lasted nine days, and I'll be honest, it could have gone on for a year, and <laughs> I'd not really have got bored, not least because Paltrow came dressed as a different decade every day, and I was really <laughs> looking forward to her rah-rah skirt. I like the day she came dressed as Mike from space. After, honestly, bucket loads of cringe. And I know it's Paltrow, but I really can't explain the level of cringe. Jurors eventually backed Paltrow. One has already spoken to the media saying, and I quote, I didn't feel that she had a reason to lie under oath. She's always in the spotlight, so she always has to be honest. Christ alive! I hope this woman doesn't make it onto the Trump jury. (laughs) Okay, maybe I will try to explain the level of cringe. Just check out Paltrow's attorney, Steve Owens, asking the judge whether Paltrow's team could bring in treats for the bailiffs in gratitude for their service. Even he's embarrassed as fuck to be doing it. (laughs) The other team said objection, because of course, but I'd really rather they'd have said define treats, as I'd have put a tenner on it being some dehydrated fruit and a voucher for 20% off sleep milk. No, I don't know what that is either. Okay. Unsurprisingly, Paltrow won. I say unsurprisingly because even the other guys' team seemed to want her to win. (laughs) They were not backing their own client. (laughs) The victor left the court, stopping only to whisper, I wish you well, into the ear of her vanquished foe like some sort of mafia don, making it the biggest victory to come from a load of bollocks since she won an Oscar for Shakespeare in love. The end. How sad it's the end. Also, I quite like Shakespeare in love. Am I I wrong to? Yes. Thanks for joining us. uh, (laughs) Little bonus rated or dated for you there. (laughs) Anyway, carrying on the nonsense. Ahoy, Twitchers. 
it seems that having a nice time in the world's angriest Avery is about to get even harder. I am, of course, talking Twitter's blue ticks rather than the actual feathered friends. Or enemies. I don't know how you feel about birds. No judgment. We've seen what happens when they go full villain. (laughs) And indeed, the chaos in Hitchcock's seminal The Birds isn't far off what's happening on everyone's favourite social media platform. Hear an interesting fluttering. Don't fall for it. They will attack. (laughs) I digress slightly because I'm not here to talk about pylons or lack of nuance or the sheer volume of hate or the fact that if Twitter is indeed the town square of our digital lives, then it's in the town of Babel. 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 Thanks. If I'd had that conversation on Twitter, I'd have been called a Nazi by now. (laughs) Quite. No, I'd like to look at some bona fide business genius in which Musk has pissed off thousands of accounts that drive the most genuine engagement on the website. And sure, Elon Musk has built several multi-billion dollar companies, whereas I have, at last count, not. But seriously, since Musk took over Twitter last October, I feel like my nephew could have made better business decisions. My nephew, by the way, is now eight weeks old. Now, to be clear, for some, blue tickers have always been a source of chagrin. We shouldn't celebrate the elite, is a cry from certain quarters. And I mostly agree with that statement. But, you know, also, celebrities and public figures and charities and businesses exist. And so do charlatans who can make a mint or dangerously manipulate people by pretending to be celebrities, public figures, charities and businesses that they are not. So the blue tick has verification worth. That the verification often gets conflated with status is a tricksy byproduct. Mm. But the Twitter blue tick apocalypse is upon us. That Musk started a blue tick subscription is old news. Not long into his Twitter ownership, Musk introduced Twitter blue, a new strata of, uh, what, I don't know, status? Mockery? (laughs) Because sure, you could pay for a blue tick, but everyone knew you'd paid for a blue tick. What a blue tick wanker paying (laughs) for a blue tick. And that's because there remained a strict distinction between what was termed a legacy verified account, i.e. old school blue tickers, and a bought it to seem important account, i.e. Twitter blue. Now it's changing again. Not paid for? No blue tick. Twitter is set to make some exceptions regarding which companies do get to retain their ticks without paying, suggesting the 10,000 most followed organisations and top 500 advertisers who have already been verified will keep that status. It's all a bit confusing. And what does all this Tom Fuckery mean in real terms for Twitter users? And should we indeed muster the energy to care? Well, I don't know about you, but I've already noticed I'm, well, not noticing content from people I follow. It just doesn't show up in the algorithm anymore. And because individuals who choose not to pay for Twitter Blue will become even less visible on the site, users may see fewer tweets from accounts we care about in our timelines. It's likely to become tougher to discover posts from accounts without the blue ticks, even if it's content that's gone viral. And perhaps most concerningly, it may become harder for most users to discern real people from fake accounts. And while so far the death of Twitter appears to have been greatly exaggerated, the platform is shrinking in both size and relevance. When asked for comment, Musk said something incomprehensible and threw up on his mum's clean t-shirt. Oh wait, no, sorry, that was my nephew. Uh, similar reaction though, similar uh, reaction. Yeah, I saw this morning that he's he's taken the New York Times' blue tick off them and tweeted something about how their thread is diarrhoea. So, I mean, it's obviously a really adult conversation going on. 
I'm torn about the blue tick conversation because I think a lot of Twitter discourse, not on Twitter, I mean about Twitter discourse is ridiculous. And I noticed that a lot of people who dropped off to Mastodon are now back on Twitter. Oh, yeah, yeah. Quite a few people. So I, I do think a lot of it is overblown, definitely. And I saw yesterday someone had uh, tweeted, changed their name to the Labour Party, bought a blue tick and tweeted that they were sacking Rosie Duffield. Obviously, it shows that it's possible. But the minute you clicked on that, you would have seen that the handle was not the Labour Party. Mm. So it means that you will be able to tell the difference between the counts. So people are going to have to work a bit harder to see which which is real, which I think, to be honest, given that the period that we're living through, that's not a bad thing, that people look a little bit harder and ask a few more questions. But will they, Hannah? But equally, I'm going to say, you're going to have companies saying, oh, we've lost our blue tick and people can now fraudulently pretend to be us. Well, Standard Issue has 60,000 followers and no blue tick and was rejected on several occasions when we asked for a blue tick. And if our rights aren't being protected, and we're a quite a big account, there is an equality in that. There are people that have blue ticks that were able to get them because, you know, they know people who work at Twitter. It, it wasn't a democracy before this. Oh, I, I totally agree with you. I think the initial reasoning behind blue ticks, and it is that verification if you, if you, you know, you've got people following Beyonce or Lizzo or whoever yeah. they're into then you want them to know that it's actually Beyonce or Lizzo. And that back in the day when Twitter started and you would actually have conversations with those people because it was much more of a community in that way, then it was very exciting because it was the real Beyonce or the real Lizzo. I don't know whether those two have ever had a chat with someone on Twitter. I'm just using them as big name examples. But it has shifted so much now. But I totally agree with you. This whole like, oh, it's the death of Twitter. It's the death of Twitter. Everyone who did that mass exodus to Mastodon, I've seen come back. Mm. Maybe it's the drama. Yeah, we're in a position where we just assume that people are stupid and that we assume that people will be tricked by stuff. And I think some people are stupid, obviously, and some people are busy. But if you consider yourself to be an intelligent person and, you know, engaging in conversations about politics, you should look more closely at all your sources anyway, I would argue. Big agree, big agree. Would you like a bit of good news, Mick? Yes, please, Hannah. Well, this week it comes from the Music Venue Trust, who announced that a fundraising drive had raised more than £2 million and will help prevent a number of live music venues across the country from closing. That is good news. That is great news. The Trust launched the campaign after a study showed that 35% of grassroots music venues have closed in the past 20 years. And many more are in a precarious position. Mark David, the chief executive of the NVT, which represents almost a thousand UK venues, said 93% of such venues were tenants with, on average, just 18 months left on their tenancies. He added, unfair rent rises can make previously viable venues suddenly unsustainable. While venues in property hotspots find themselves turfed out to make way for conversions to flats. That has happened in Cambridge a lot. Mm. Anyway, going back to Mark, short leases hamper those venues, which will want to raise funds to improve facilities and make the possibility of government support less likely. The Trust has found nine venues all outside of London and in areas of high deprivation whose landlords are prepared to sell their freehold to the charity, including the Ferret in Preston, the Snug in Atherton, Le Pub 
in Newport, <laughs> the Glad Cafe in Glasgow, and the Hairy Dog in Derby. Let's start a band to celebrate, Mick. Yeah, I'd like to play all of those pubs. Yeah. They have excellent names. What instrument are you going to be playing? Well, I can play a violin very badly, or I can learn a new one. The choice is yours, Mickey. Okay, well, I was going to suggest I could be the resident yodeler, so maybe with the violin we could make this work. Yeah, yodel shop. Yodel shop. Come on. Amazing. Sorted. Keep an eye out for our date at the Hairy Dock. (laughs) More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where if America sneezes, the UK catches a cold. Oh, but with a whole cupboard full of lemsip, I hear (laughs) people cry in this tortured analogy where a cold is loss of abortion rights and lemsip is complacency. (laughs) Yep, emboldened by victories at home, some of the most prominent American anti-abortion groups are exporting their tactics to the UK. Those tactics include public protests and demonstrations, anti-abortion counselling centres or so-called crisis pregnancy centres and the cultivation of ties with clerical leaders. Oh good, the church, what could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Their slogan appears to be, if we can do it, you can do it. And while, thankfully, these efforts are meeting significant opposition in Britain, where the right to abortion has wide support, I think it's like 85% of people support Mm. a woman's right to choose, anti-abortion protests at UK clinics and hospitals have surged in recent years with UK affiliates of US-based organisations able to claim much of the credit. We've seen a real uptick in protest activity over this year. Catherine O'Brien, a spokesperson for the non-profit BPAS. Do we our listeners know what BPAS is? I reckon our listeners know what the British Pregnancy Advisory Services are, Mickey. No need to read it out. Thanks, Hannah. Catherine O'Brien told The Guardian, Our fear with Roe v Wade being overturned is not only as it inspired anti-abortion activists globally, but also that American anti-abortion organisations may now have a pool of money they won't need to spend in the US and it will divert here and around the world. They're going into schools, into universities and have a real drive to recruit the next generation of anti-abortion activists, she continued. They know they are playing the long game and they believe that they will win, even if it takes decades. Now, of course, as you all know, it's kind of helped by the fact that abortion rights in this country still fall under criminal law rather than health care. And women are still charged with the crime of abortion in Britain. In the 10 years to April 2022, police in England and Wales recorded 67 cases of, quote, procuring an illegal abortion. It is well past time to decriminalise abortion and it is so, so key to keep supporting the organisations like BPAS that help women and other people needing access to abortions. Amen. Don't amen it. That's Sorry. Awesome. <laughs> I agree, obviously, that it's a, it's a settled issue in this country. I don't think we need to panic, but that doesn't mean that they can't make life very miserable for the women who are having abortions. And mm-hmm. yeah... You've got more abortion chat coming up in the I do, yeah. Um, Next week or the week after, yeah, I'm talking to some women who've written a play about the current situation in Malta, which, as you can guess, as a Catholic country, is not good. No. Do we end on that? (laughs) I don't know how to make it chipper. (laughs) 
I am joined by Liv Hennessy and Lisa Sperling, writer and director of the new play, Vardy v Rooney, The Wagatha Christie Trial. Guys, thank you so much for joining me today. It is the trial that gripped the nation. And indeed, after a few shows back in December, you are back with a limited run at the Ambassadors Theatre in London's West End from April the 6th to May the 20th. Liv, can you give the listener a little rundown on what it's about? The play is about a very high-profile libel case between Colleen Rooney and Rebecca Vardy. And there was a reveal post put up on social media, which was Colleen Rooney saying that she had essentially caught the persons leaking private Instagram stories from her account to the Sun newspaper. And she publicly said that came from Rebecca Vardy's account. And that led everybody to the Royal Courts of Justice in a very expensive libel trial. Liv, why did you want to write this piece? Because you've used the actual testimony from the trial. Was it just a case of the material is too good not to? What happened was I was approached by Eleanor Lloyd Productions, who are the producers of this show, and they sort of said, come in and talk about a very high profile legal case that we'd like to put on stage. So I had no idea what it actually was. I'd obviously followed the trial myself. I found it, like most people, very interesting. And when I got there and they said, oh, it's actually going to be Bardi v Rooney for the stage... Um, you're going to use the kind of court docs. I mean, I was I was just like, okay, this is a, quite a creative challenge. But, you know, I was very kind of keen to get started. I've always been interested in liable law and the way it works in, in the UK. So I really liked the idea of getting stuck into something like that. And then, yeah, when I started reading the court docs, I was just like, this is gold. <laughs> it was just amazing. I mean, not all of it. Some of it was like long days of testimony about how Instagram works. But um, yeah, so that's kind of how I came to the project, really. Lisa, what about you? Because obviously you're dealing with real life testimony, real life people, things that actually happened. Like, how do you approach something like that as a director? Well, I think for me, there was something about this this whole conversation which felt like the media, uh, and it is it has been a media frenzy, mm. had its opinion and its take and its understanding of what happened. So I came to this trial. I hadn't deep dived into it, and so I wasn't a Wagatha Christie obsessive in that same way. I sort of it was in my peripheral vision necessarily, but I wasn't I wasn't kind of honed in on it. And so I came to it actually with quite fresh eyes in terms of reading it and going. First of all, you can't believe these things are being said or this thing, these things are being expressed, but also. I took it as a way of understanding the situation in a a kind of much deeper dive than what you see from the media, because the media obviously are giving you the headlines, whether it's, you know, Peter Andre and the Chipper Arthur newspaper article, or whether it's uh, the pigeon uh, shitting on her hair, or or whatever that might be. There were all these kind of incredible puns and taglines, which our press, including Wagatha Christie, the actual sense itself, do brilliantly. But there wasn't the sense of the humans behind it and the experience and particularly the the women behind it and what they, what they had gone through, the why of it, why are they here? Why did they care? Why did Vardy bring this case? Why would Colleen not settle? Like there's so many decisions that have been made that have got them to this point with so many, you know, the entire nation going, why, why is this happening when it costs so much money? And in the middle of a part of this was happening during the pandemic and we're in the cost of living crisis. Like why is this, why is this conversation in this moment, the thing that is seizing everybody's hearts and minds and making them want to know more about it. So I was trying to almost get past all of that and understand the why of the human beings behind it. And then as soon as you're doing that, that becomes a very easy thing to rehearse and explore with a group of actors in a room and go, right, how do we tell this story? 
it strikes me that Rebecca Vardy is not a daft individual. It also strikes me that Colleen Rooney probably knows quite a lot about libel law from the amount of shite that's been written about her and her husband over the years. And it strikes me, as indeed it did the judge, that the evidence is pretty overwhelmingly clear. So what on earth possesses someone to really tarnish their own reputation for everyone to see? Do you think there are people involved in this who perhaps need to take more responsibility. Why hasn't a legal team said to her, probably don't do this? I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, look, we don't know what conversations have been had between Rebecca Vardy and her legal team, Colleen Mooney and her legal team. But what I will say is something that really is interesting for me is that this case illustrates how libel law works in the UK. And right now we're in a very strange time, which means that if you say something about someone rich online. They could come for everything you've got. They could take you to court. And if you say, you know, something about someone who hasn't got the means to do any of that, you can say what you want. That's a really frightening thing. And we've seen it live in action over the past few years in the UK because of the way that the law works here and the and the burden of proof being on the publisher. It can be used to silence people. So what is actually really interesting is that Rebecca Vardy actually did have a very strong case. There is not much evidence that links her to <laughs> leaking the three false stories that Colleen Rooney ha- has accused her of leaking in that post. She had a very strong case because of the way libel law works, i.e. that the burden of proof was on Colleen to then prove that that she had leaked specifically those stories and that she'd leaked things from her Instagram to the CERN. However, because of the way the case operated, because of the way Sherborne dealt with that case, it kind of fell apart for her. When the case was happening, everyone was going, this is unbelievable and someone should put this on stage. And then the conversation started about getting hold of the trial transcripts and everything and looking into that. And at the time, the conversation was, Colleen probably can't win this case because she can't prove it. I think that opinion has gone now because we have the benefit of hindsight. But at the time, everyone was suggesting that there is no way that Colleen could win this. And so that's something that we, you know, in some ways we're exploring this play in the first half and the second half is that one side in the first half, you absolutely feel that one side is going to win. And in the second half, that is brought into doubt. And that, you know, you you go into it going, well, I know for the majority of people watching, but I think as you're watching it, the ins and outs and the intricacies and just look, you know, our legal system and our law and actually so much evidence went missing that then it became about prior evidence that they could bring into the case. And that is a, you know, an individual decision about whether that justice makes the opinion to go, I can use that evidence and bring that in and bring that into the mix. So it's fascinating. And I feel, you know, we've obviously looked at all the kind of other media conversations around it. And there's podcasts with Colleen's lawyers and various other things. And they talk about the fact that it wasn't until the, the day of the verdict where anyone knew which way it was going to go no one could predict it and call it. So that in itself has its own dramatic energy to it and a sense of going, oh gosh, what's going to happen next? It's interesting, Liv, because the point you've made before was about how libel law works and how we're in a situation where if you say something about someone rich online and they have the means and they can come after you. I think one of the interesting things that we we talk about on the podcast, uh, you know, a reasonable amount as we are journalists, is that the, the people using social media now who don't understand that these are laws that also apply 
to them. Yeah, I think it, we are in this very strange time where social media is like the Wild West. You know, the people using social media are not aware of the legalities behind it. And because of that, we're seeing some what I think of as quite frightening things happening, which is, for example, Aaron Banks personally suing Carol Cadwaladar because of a tweet. We're seeing Noel Clark personally suing people on Twitter for things that he feels are defamatory. Mm. And the thing is, when you're just an individual online, you don't have like the backing of The Guardian or the backing of these big publications with huge legal teams. It's just you. And that is really, really frightening. And I, I agree. I don't think people are aware of um, how risky that that is. And even also something that I find really interesting about this case, which is about um, privacy, mm. you know, it was really strange for lots of us when we got in the room and we talked about what the idea of privacy is for your personal Twitter or personal private Instagram account. And there was someone in the room who's not on social media. And she was like, like how is 300 followers private? That doesn't sound private to me. That sounds really public. And I think that, you know, maybe there'll come a time when you're following someone online and when you when you follow a private account, you have to agree to the T's and C's, which is like, you can't pass things on, you can't screenshot. Again, I think we're, I don't think this case could happen t- 10 years ago. And I also don't think it will happen in 10 years time. I think that it's very much about the now, which we found really fascinating. And that's part of the reason we wanted mm. to move at the pace that we've moved at this production. Just to add to live, I think as artists, you're always in some ways trying to be in conversation with the moment that you're living in. And, you know, for the majority of a certain age, you remember a time where you weren't walking down a street and thinking about what you were experiencing and then thinking about, oh, how am I going to edit that or filter that in some way to share with my followers or to share with my close family members or my circle of friends and that idea of community. And I feel part of the reasons I was so excited to, to, to tackle this production was there is an element of control here and an element of two women who are in some ways either through choice because they've entered into this world of footballers' wives or because they didn't have a choice and they were going out with someone who became a footballer and became so famous. And there's always a choice in it, but they went, okay, I'll I'll run with it. But this element of control and how we control the narrative and how we control the story around ourselves. And one of the brilliant things that's happened, which I didn't know about, was that actually if you think about, you know, the peak of kind of Posh and Becks and other footballers and their wives, you're imagining a time where every picture that was taken by the press could be sold for a huge amount of money and it was all about how do you protect your family and protect everyone what the likes of instagram and facebook and other social media outlets have done is it's in some way handed that power back to the individual and gone well if you're going to take a picture of me i will take that pit that same picture and i will post it to my followers and i probably have more followers in some cases than your publications have which has instantly eradicated any financial benefit that you're going to have so there is a game being played between the media and between instagram and the footballers that i and footballers wives and other people with high profile that i find fascinating and something that again I haven't seen explored on stage before I'm not seeing being talked about Mm. these these power struggles and how that's going to develop going forward I totally agree but we're in this very strange sort of like neoliberal period where like the self is king and there's been a kind of like commodification of, of the self so people who would you wouldn't think of as public figures i.e. they're just private citizens, maybe they work in HR, suddenly when they have a huge public account, if they're selling things, if they're fronting campaigns, 
they then potentially are public figures and therefore it's within the the public's right to know whether we can trust them or not it's something that is really again it's like something that's that's very now and something that's explored here because part of um Vardy's case was that this is a private issue this is about two people but part of Sherborne's case was the fact that Vardy set herself up as a public figure by fronting campaigns by doing tv work and her social media was part of that and therefore we should know what she gets up to and you know it's all about what's in the public interest and what's not and I think it's a really fascinating ongoing conversation that people don't really have any answers to you know I think it's interesting what you just said Lisa there was a thing last year I don't know if you remember Mandy from Hollyoaks she was basically given an ultimatum she'd started an OnlyFans account and she was told look you know this doesn't fit with our brand values or and I just thought I don't know if they still do it but I remember the 90s I remember the early 2000s those Hollyoaks girls were all over every copy of FHM every copy of Zoo you know there were calendars of them like in you know scantily clad and whatever and I just thought she's just only in the means of production do you know what I mean like this is exactly what Mandy from Hollyoaks has always been expected to do as part of her job and she's just actually said no I'm going to do that and I'm going to take the money for that it's a really good point and I think again it comes back to this idea of control and who and I think there's so much we've learned during this about the newspapers protecting their sources and the fact that um you know livers have um, can't talk about them now they had conversations with journalists who have sources you know and and, and various people have been in touch with and have a, a sort of higher profile nature going but the thing is someone turns to you and says well you either give us this or we publish this or if you want to cultivate this relationship with the press via your PR person then you're going to need to give them something in return which isn't necessarily in the play to a certain extent but there is a whole bargaining that is going on between everything we see that is presented to us whether it's an advertising campaign whether it's Instagram you know the fact that we've only just reached a moment where people need to declare on their Instagram when they're actually advertising something they're being paid for it as opposed to they're just going oh I love wearing this like Mm. it's as Liv was saying, it is so commodified. And I and what we've put on stage is two women who are navigating this. And you mentioned at the start of that kind of, you know, not to be to be sued, but kind of going, why did Vardy do this? It's so obvious. And I go, I, we will never know whether she did or she didn't to a certain extent, even though um, Justice Stein has, has given their, their statement and their opinion and their verdict. But I feel like ultimately what, what we are saying in this play or what Vardy might be saying to a certain extent is everybody was doing this. Everybody was having these conversations. Everybody was kind of sharing stuff or or telling their friends who might have told someone else who might have. And what this case is trying to pin down is who exactly did this on this day about this post. And that's really hard to prove. But I feel like someone is sat there within it going, it's not the same, but a bit like in those conversations that we had around the Me Too movement. And you felt an entire sort of generation, mainly men, of going, but everybody did this. And now I'm getting bollocked for it. And you're going, yes, because the moment has changed and we're trying to say this isn't okay. Mm. There is some sort of morality about this. There are certain values and you get shot down. And I feel like what we have is two women who not only exist in the court of public opinion, but they also exist in a, a judicial court and they're having to navigate their way through that. And that's why from an audience perspective, I think, you know, an audience will come and see this and they'll go, this is just 
fascinating and i'll also laugh a lot like the difference between someone's public and private life like what liv has done brilliantly is given us a way of um a seeing an insight into these whatsapps and what was being shared it's that kind of um, wizard of oz moment where you can see behind the curtain and go oh my god that's what was happening whilst at the same time seeing how we navigate it and also seeing these two barristers who are old school and um have a certain way of dealing and, and exist in a world that feels quite kind of high court highly educated high class and the expectation is that these women won't be able to hold their own will look stupid and won't be able to navigate it and they don't they are intelligent and they are bright and they have brilliant things to say and they and they hold their own in the majority of the case and i feel that's really impressive and really important because this idea that we could be i don't know punching down or mocking someone because they are a wife or girlfriend or known as a wag is isn't on and yeah the production really leans into that and is trying to find a way to to celebrate in some ways these extraordinary women and the lives they lead that sort of brings me to my final question, really, which is kind of the elephant in the room, I guess, in a way, which is that like we as a society, we like to have good women. We like to have bad women. We like to put people in boxes. And in our societal obsession with this case, we kind of run the risk of reinforcing those stereotypes where we basically we pit women against each other. Is that something you've been conscious of while you've been crafting this play? Yeah, and you know what I'd, I'd say, because obviously that is something that like, when Lisa and I first took the, this on, there is no way we would have made a show in any way that we were like punching down or we were mocking two women who are publicly arguing. And what I always say is that like, this show is one of the few times you can hear these women in their own words, outside of the lens of the tabloids. We've only ever seen this trial via tabloid journalism, via Twitter, and now... You know, I think people will be very surprised at who these women are. You get a real sense of them on the stand when they're speaking at length about their lives and what's brought them here. And I think it's really, really fascinating. And I don't I think it will change a lot of opinions. But it's hard, isn't it? Because we also in this country, we build people up and we pull them down. So we so we admire privilege to a certain extent. We admire wealth. And then we mock it and then we're utterly obsessed by what handbag they have or what shoes they're wearing or what outfits they've got on. So it's it's that sense of tapping into someone and going as an audience, maybe, or a reader and going, oh, there's a guilty pleasure there. There's an obsession there that's really enjoyable. And then there's a wit to it, which is, you know, comes from this, even the phrase Wagatha Christie. That is classic British wit that you might not get in another country. And you, and you celebrate some of that and those newspaper puns. And that's all part of our culture and who we are. And then, you, yeah, you see these two women who have been pitted against each other but in some ways are are closer to each other than they'd like to admit in terms of what they're navigating and they've made a different set of choices and it is the elephant in the room i think we can't escape the fact and it probably wouldn't have been made into a show or a tv drama or it wouldn't have made the headlines if some of the things that were coming out weren't hilarious and ridiculous and extraordinary and slightly astonishing that is part of it but at the same time like with anything when people are pushed to the extremes and have extreme lives politicians famous footballers, their wives and girlfriends, whoever that might be, you, you want to understand who they are behind it. And this and this gives you a chance to understand some of the, as I've talked about before, some of the why behind some of those decisions and to dig a little bit deeper and also to get some of the historical context. Like there's a moment in the show where Colleen talks about the fact, you know, that moment where a photograph was taken of her at age 16 going to school. And you're like, wow, that's, 
I don't know how many years, 30 some, 20 something years of being in the public eye and having no choice about what was being said about you. And her going, I'm here today because I've accepted that. But when it's someone who I'm close to, I'm not going to accept that anymore. And so I feel like for me, and particularly in this moment, actually, as we come back to the theatre and come back to the arts, and it still feels there's, you know, there's still an element of post-pandemic in the shows that we watch on TV or we walk out of our house to see. There is an element of wanting to see something that is that is known, that we connect to, that we have a slight understanding of, and there's an element of wanting to to learn and to tap into who we are and, and understand that a little bit deeper. And I, I hope and I believe that this this project, this play does that, that you get you get to have your... I suppose your guilty pleasure, but you also get to, d- to dive a little deeper and understand something and empathise in a way that you might have not done otherwise. Fadi versus Rooney, the Wagatha Christie trial is at the Ambassadors Theatre from April the 6th to May the 20th and tickets are tickets are still available right it's not completely sold they are, out yet they are still available it's selling very well and it's also worth knowing that it's, it's going on tour around the country so it's going to liverpool it's going to manchester it's going to woking it's going to dublin it's going to brighton so it's 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 going on a big old tour around the country as soon as it finishes in the west end so there's a chance for everyone to see it brilliant that's fantastic news are you guys on social media at all where we can follow you to keep up to date with what you're up to i'm not on social media honestly want to see this play you might get rid of yours. <laughs> but Wagatha the Play does have an Instagram account and a Twitter account. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. I am really, really looking forward to seeing it. Thank you so much. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by stand-up comedian, game show quiz host, and one of my big time favourites, Zoe Lyons. Zoe, hello. Hello. How are you doing? All right, thanks. I'm so delighted to have a natter with you. In the words of the very wise Hannah Dunleavy, you can never have too much Zoe Lyons. (laughs) Oh, you can. You can. (laughs) Ask my partner, you can. You can definitely have too much. Once you've had too much, it's a bit like too much cheese. You've got to lie down for a while and sort of purge for a a good sort of 16 to 18 hours. (laughs) Big question first. uh, How Mm -hmm. are the pistol squats coming along? Oh, you know, I never mastered them. I've never mastered them. They're so tricky. Do you know what it is? It's not the strength with the pistol squat. It's the balance. Mm -hmm. I have no sense of balance whatsoever. But I'm, I'm getting better in other areas. I did my CrossFit this morning. I was I was deadlifting this morning. I've gone beyond my own body weight now of deadlifting, so I'm quite happy with that. Not bad for a 51-year-old pumping a bit of iron. I love it. I love the weightlifting. I realise I've turned into someone who's like, uh, what do you bench, bro? <laughs> I got trapped under a bench press the other day and my teacher had to... Oh, it was so embarrassing. Like, I was like, I could totally do this. And I sort of got it out of the racks and then I got it down, but then I just couldn't. It just wouldn't go back <laughs> up again. And I, I was I was like, excuse me, excuse me, can somebody help me out, please? Hello? Hello, can you help me out? Oh, it's so embarrassing. She picked it up like it was an earbud. I was like, oh. God. Like she's a gladiator. Yeah. For listeners who don't do heavyweights, who don't bench, bro, the getting it down is is the easy part. In fairness, it's sort of the easy bit. Yeah, the gravity <laughs> helps with that bit. Yeah, but getting it back up—it's so psychological. It's so psychological mm. doing things like that because you know you can do it, and then there's a bit of your brain that goes, "I don't think you can do it," and that's the worst. And it's usually when you're sort of mid doing it, your brain goes, "Oh, I think I've changed my mind," and that 
and your arms just go to jelly. Wobble. And that's wobble. it. Wobble. The wobble. The wobble. And then there are other days where you just feel like titanium. Absolutely. And you're like, I'm just going to absolutely nail this. I had one of those days today. I felt really good. Excellent news. Despite four hours sleep, having driven back from Taunton last night. But yeah, I felt pretty powerful and awesome. I'll be honest. She still got it. One of my classes, they get you to flip a tyre, a 150 kilo tyre. And I've never felt more like a fucking warrior. Oh, it's great, isn't it? It's, it's just, uh, yeah. I mean, you'll never need it in your day-to-day life, hopefully, sure. Mickey. But, you know, if, ever, <laughs> if the if the, if the tyre situation ever arises, you the girl. You the girl for that tyre flipping. Thanks. I'm going to get cards made up and everything. So, yeah. Zoe, <laughs> when you chatted to Hannah just over a year ago, you were generously candid about your alopecia and your yeah. current tour is called Bald Ambition. So I just wondered yeah. at what point you thought, this is a show. <laughs> like any comedian, at some point you have to monetize that misery. <laughs> like any any incident in life for a comedian, you're just waiting for it to stop smarting so that you can make it funny. And um, yeah, I, I, I decided sort of last January, I was like, I've got I've to do something with this. I've got to do something with this. Because I'd started talking about it on stage and I thought, actually, you know, my hair is growing back. I've got quite a lot of hair at the minute. And um, I thought, I'm going to mark this period of my life with a little tour show and talk about it and do it. And um, I'm really enjoying it. I'm really, en- I'm really enjoying it. I'm 26 dates into a 40-date tour. And mm. when it's finished, it'll be finished. It'll be done. Yeah. And that's how, genuinely how I feel about it. It'd be like, it'll be... Boxed off and done. Like my producer said, do you want to add some more dates? And I went, nope, it's, that'll be it. Done. That's it. That's my, that bit of that life will be not dealt with. That sounds too final because, you know, things are always processing, but I'll have been through a thing. I'll have turned it into something funny. I'll have toured it. And now it'll be time for something different. Closure, I think, is the American term. Is that, that, that's the more eloquent way of putting it. Yes, that is the more eloquent way of putting it. Yeah. A bit of closure on it. And has yeah. your emotions towards your alopecia changed? Because I've noticed that you have ditched the wigs a bit more recently. Yeah, I mean, I still wear the wigs for telly. I'm in this really weird position at the minute because it, it is growing back quite a lot. But I've got I've been left with the way that alopecia is an unpredictable beast of its own. It's left me with I've got a ball patch right in the middle of my right in the middle of the front of my head. You're like, Thanks. oh come on, guys, <laughs> yeah. there. Really? And one side still, still kind of gone and I'm missing quite a bit at the back, but it's, um, I reckon I'm, I'm probably two to three months off feeling really confident with going out without a hat or anything or a scarf or anything. I think it'll be back. It'll be back to a point where, yeah. So I still wear scarves and hats on stage and I still wear the wigs on the, on the telly. But if I'm posting stuff online, if I'm meeting people and talking about it, I get my head out, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm sort of more at peace with it. I am more at peace with it. It's really emotional, I think, hair. And this isn't to dismiss male pattern baldness, which I know can cause a lot of distress to to guys, even though it's much more accepted. But I think particularly for women, our attachment to our hair, even like growing my silver in, growing my grey in, my hair was still there. It's just a different fucking colour. But it was still quite an emotional journey because... Yeah, it, it makes us look at ourselves differently. We don't necessarily recognise the person in the mirror, and that's really disconcerting. 
Yes, yeah, it's challenging. And also society views women different. We're just used to more as a society seeing men without hair. We just, that's just a, that's just become a sort of visual norm. Um, and that's not to say that men don't struggle when they lose their hair. Of course they do. They really do. And men struggle with alopecia as much as women do struggle with it. But it's just that as a society, our brains don't sort of twitch so much when we see a guy without hair. And the, yeah, I, I, you know, I talk about it. I'm not, I'm like, I wasn't particularly vain, but, um, I really like my hair. <laughs> I really like my hair. And I think because mine was associated with so much mental turmoil, mine was stress related and it was very much triggered by, I, I mean, I call it now a breakdown. I, I had a breakdown and, um, it's, uh, it's one thing to sort of feel that you're healing mentally from a breakdown, but when you can still see the physical scars of it, that's quite challenging. It's sort of, you know, it's, it's arresting at times. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And because it was such a dramatic response to a mental episode, yeah, it's it sort of, uh, it, um, it challenges you to the core. I feel like when our body gets involved with our mental health issues, and mine absolutely does that too, in a, in a more just shitting myself when I don't want to. I mean, when do you want to? Yeah. I don't know when I've ever wanted to. Oh, when my IBS kicks in, you know, it feels like mm. a betrayal. It feels like, oh, fuck, yeah. yeah, what? Yeah, why are you letting me down now? Yeah, totally. Why are you doing this? Yeah, yeah. So um I won't lie. I'm very glad I've done this tour. I'm very glad I've spoken about it, and I'll be very glad to put it to bed. Yeah, fair dues. I'm, I'm afraid I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick at the scab a tiny bit more though. Because <laughs> yeah. you, you've also been really open about the fact that you had what you have been terming a midlife crisis. And I'm assuming mm. it is what you just said about your breakdown. And it, yeah. it just doesn't seem to be something we hear women talk about. Even though I've known a lot of women in their middle years, late forties, early fifties, who just want to flip the table, chuck it all up in the air. There's a reason why Shirley Valentine really spoke to a lot of women. And I wondered yeah. what the response has been with you sharing that information about yourself. Yeah, I think there's a lot. I think it resonates a lot with people. I think, and it's great. We're in, we're in a moment in history where women are talking much more openly about menopause and all of those things that go with it. Um, but I think sometimes what happens is we, we allow men to have their midlife crises. You know, we allow them to, you know, oh, do you hear about Roger? You know, shacks up with a 26 year old, bought a sports car, he's living in his shed. You know, and we kind of go, <laughs> oh, that's you know, normal. But with women, we are, I think our midlife turmoils are much more connected to our menopause, mm -hmm. typically. And then it becomes sort of, well, you know, she's going through the change and she's, she's getting a bit warm and she's getting, you know, she's a bit irritable. But actually, aside from that, I think we could also have our own moments of crisis. Aside from the menopause, aside from that, you, I think we sort of cover it all with that now. And um, mine was partly to do with the menopause, but also partly to do with a lot of recognising finally in my 50s that a lot of behaviours that I'd carried through my whole life weren't serving me anymore. I had to address a lot of things. I had to address a lot of things that I'd carried with me from childhood I, I it, it came to a crunch point and that was aside from any hormonal changes I was going through and I think sometimes we just we brush everything off for women as being part of the menopause and actually you know I think midlife can be be quite challenging for people because you get halfway through your life and you realize you don't really know who you are <laughs> you, totally. you know um yeah 
And we have this sort of extended adolescence now. I think our generation, so I'm 46, you're in your early 50s, our kind of yeah. age are the ones where we've had this, oh, you don't have to have kids until you're older. Yeah. You don't have to have kids at all and you are less frowned upon by society. They're still oh. not like totally with it, but they're, they're less likely to frown upon you. We've had this chance to to do more and to kind of extend our youth in inverted commas. And then you get to a point where you're like, oh, well, I do have to take stock. And there's a time where caring responsibilities come from the other side, where our parents are getting older or the, our guardians mm-hmm. are getting older. And it's a huge mental fuck isn't it shift yes it's a huge mental shift particularly if those relationships that you had with guardians or parents were somewhat fraught Mm. and you know you you realize that you've been looking for things within those relationships that actually when you get to this age my age now you go that's never going to come that's never going to those things that i've been searching for are never going to happen and now i'm in the position of having to give there's a lot of learning has to go on to be able to to accept that counter it and be able to do it and be, and, and become an adult. Yeah. And I, and yes, it sounds ridiculous. I'm 51 to say become an adult, but I genuinely have had to learn how to do that. I genuinely have. And, and it, because I've started on that process now of learning and trying to sort of work things out, it's, I'm finding it fascinating. <laughs> I'm finding it fascinating. You know, I had a massive revelation, going quite deep here, but I had a massive revelation the other day that actually what I've done with my life is turn my coping mechanism, which is making fun out of things, into a career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I suddenly realized that's why I associate so much anxiety with what I do as well, yeah. because it was a coping mechanism. And now it's a career but my coping mechanism was the way that I got through life. But it had, you know, it had it had a lot of anxieties attached to it. You know, if I don't do it properly, this will happen and that'll happen and this these people won't be happy and that person won't be happy and I've got to make it all right. And um, I've often looked at comedians who, who seem to be uh, so light and joyful with things and um, I've envied them because there's always been this heaviness with it attached to it for me, which I've only just realised. So it's like, I was like, oh, God. So, um, yeah, it is, uh, it's quite, I'm, I'm enjoying this part of life. It's like, a, it's, it's like an onion, this bit of life. <laughs> you realise it's, it's not, it's got so many layers to it and you peel them off and life just becomes much more interesting and fulfilling. And sometimes and it smells and sometimes it makes you cry. Sometimes it smells. It makes you cry a lot. <laughs> yeah. It makes you cry a lot. So it's not, yeah. obviously you went through this huge trauma and your coping mechanism, aka your job, is to take that, make it funny and share it with other people. But, do you feel better for it? It sounds like you feel better for it. I'm not saying, do you recommend having a breakdown, but do you feel better for it? Oh, God, yes. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, if I could go back in time and um, uh, flick a switch so none of this would happen, no way. No way. I would much rather have experienced this. Definitely. Again, it's a cliche, but n- nothing worth having in life it comes easy, and that's that's what learning is, isn't it? That's what it's all about. So, no, I mean, even losing the hair, I'd do it again because it, you know, it's very confronting and it made me stop and go, if my body is resisting this much, then my mind must be holding on to other things too. Then it's time to take stock and listen. So, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm very grateful for where I am now. Really grateful for where I am now. I think that's really it's good to hear for you. And I think it's really positive yeah. and comforting for other people, particularly other women to hear. Oh, I have much greater capacity for happiness now. 
much greater capacity. The understanding and the capacity is now there. Yeah, it's. Uh, I feel quite positive. That's excellent. Yeah. You've got a month and a bit left of Bold Ambition and people can check ticket yes. availability on your website, which is zoelions.co.uk. Then what are you up to? A little bit of lying down, maybe? Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to um, very much like make like a Southern European and take a lot of July and August off. Lovely. We never do this as comics. Either you're going to Edinburgh, you're preparing for Edinburgh, you know, stressing about Edinburgh or all of those things. And I thought, actually, it's been a full on few years for me mentally. And I don't want to just plow on regardless. I want to stop and take stock and see what I want to do. Because sometimes, you know, doing this job, it's, it is, com- you know, it's, it is relentless. It's like, if you're not doing, you're not, you're not living, you're not being. And, um, I don't want to be in that state anymore. And sometimes it's like a being, being a fly, sort of just flying into a window the whole time, trying to find the way out. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you've got to reverse quite a long way back to have a look at, see where the door is. So, um, <laughs> my plan is to just actually decide what I want to do with the next bit. If that stand up, great. If it's not, Great. Well, let's see what happens. Let's oh. see what happens. I don't just want to carry on because this is what I've always done. And now I just want to be more, oh God, it sounds, with the risk of being really wanky, Nikki, I just want to be more fulfilled in everything that I do. I want to be proud of what I do and I want to enjoy it and I want to put my all into it. Good. And uh, yeah. hopefully the next time we chat with whatever you're doing, you will have lost the bit that makes you think that sounds wanky as opposed to what yeah. you deserve. <laughs> yeah. Don't know. Here's hoping. Yeah. It's lightning back. Are you doing any more lightning? No, we did two. And then I think the technical term is, it got axed. Um, <laughs> they always say that, don't they? They always say that in the press. And they'll go, not recommissioned. It's always axed. Yeah. Make um, it sound violent. Yeah, and I was terribly sad about that because I really enjoyed doing that and I really thought I'd found something that I really enjoyed doing it. And I, and I actually thought I was quite good at it. You are really good at it. You're I really enjoyed host. it. And I was like, yeah, yeah I, th- I thought, oh, here we go. But such is the way. I mean, you know, there are things that you can control in the world and there are other things that you can't. And uh, the decision of the powers that be at the BBC are things that I can't control. So, um, yeah, sadly, it's it's no more... Well, let's add that to the pile of freedom for Zoe. More options yeah. out there. <laughs> I'm very much available to host forthcoming quiz shows on the television. I did enjoy it. I really, really did enjoy doing it. So uh, who knows? Who knows what will happen? Are you any good on the other side of it? Are you any good at quizzes? Yeah. Okay. I'm quite competitive. Quick fire round, Zoe. Are you ready? Okay. Yeah. In which sport might you compete for the claret jug? Oh. Claret jug. Oh, a whiny sport. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I want to get involved. The claret jug. Mm. Uh, is it horse racing? It's not horse racing. Okay. Which which sport has booze at the end? Which sport does have booze at the end? It's golf. The answer is golf. Is it? Oh, yeah. Of course. Okay. Which Patrick Swayze film has oh. the tagline, Before Sam was murdered, he told Molly he'd love and protect her forever. Oh, I have no idea. No idea. Oh, I, oh, I've set myself up for a fall here, haven't I? I can only think of one Patrick Swayze film and it's not, what's it? Dirty Dancing. <laughs> it, it's not Dirty Dancing. It was Ghost. Oh, yeah. Okay. Which is the largest ocean, the Pacific or the Atlantic? It's the Pacific. Correct. 
Yes. For bonus points, how does my mum pronounce Pacific? Specific. Yes, she does. Look at that. <laughs> the specific ocean. <laughs> Zoe, where can people follow what you're up to? If indeed you are up to anything on the socials, yeah. please. I am on Instagram mostly these days. I'm sort of I'm still on Twitter, but I just don't I don't really like Elon Musk, so I just don't bother anymore. He's that just is. silly. Mm. He's a silly little lump of play doh <laughs> pushed in eyes, and I just don't want to get involved. So Instagram because Mark Zuckerberg's so much better. No, because um because <laughs> I like it with the pictures and the reels of dogs. I'm on there at Zoe Lyons Comedy. Amazing. And thank you so much for chatting with me. It has been, as ever, a gorgeous pleasure. Oh, it's always lovely to chat and see you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we drive the patriarchy into the bunker as we discuss all things women's sport. Those are golf words. Just FYI, no idea if I've used them correctly. Don't at me. First of all, huge congratulations to the Red Roses, that is England women's rugby team, who have sold a record number of tickets for an international women's rugby fixture for their upcoming Six Nations match against France at Twickenham. That is big Twickenham, if you remember my chat with Shauna Brown at the end of last year, and it's a big deal. If you're wondering how the Six Nations is going, well... You could just watch it on the telly, like, but England, France and Wales won their matches again last week. So that match between England and France is likely to be very important. Another congratulations to the 30 women named on on Women's Hours Power List. That is really hard to say, FYI, which this year had a sports theme. Delighted to see some standard issue interview alumnus included in that list, such as Alex Scott and Ramla Ali, but even more so to see some excellent women in less public-facing positions who are making all this stuff happen, such as Sue Anstis, founder of the Women's Sport Collective, agent and director of women in football, Joe Tung, and Beth Barrett-Wild, director of the women's professional game at the England Cricket Board. All brilliant women who are leading the charge for women in sport. Let's talk about Wimbledon for a minute. In tennis generally, there have been a lot of headlines recently about tensions rising between Belarusian, Russian and Ukrainian players. Marta Kostyuk refused to shake hands with her Russian opponent, Vavara Gracheva's hand, after beating her in the ATX Open final earlier this month. Lesia Tsurenko spoke of an ethical conflict in facing Russian players. And Kostyuk also said that players have been fighting behind the scenes to exclude Russians and Belarusians from from the sport. Meanwhile, world number two, Arena Sabalenka from Belarus, recently said she had never faced so much hate in the locker room. It's certainly a complicated situation and one that is fraught with emotions and difficulty. However, I have to say that I think the correct decision has been made by the All England Lawn Tennis Club, which is to let Russian and Belarusian players, who were last year excluded, participate in this year's tournament. AELTC chairman Ian Hewitt said that the club still condemns the Russian invasion of Ukraine and supports the people of Ukraine and also announced conditions which players from those countries must meet. These include agreeing not to support their states or their regimes and leaders and not receiving funding from those states, including by way of sponsorship from companies operated or controlled by them. Support staff will also have to sign neutrality declarations. The decision to exclude players last year was guided by the UK government at the time, but the 
the Lawn Tennis Association was fined as a result and points were not awarded from the tournament. The Lawn Tennis Association faced losing its ATP and WTA membership had the ban continued this year. Those are obviously very serious consequences for tennis in the UK. But I think more importantly, it isn't right to exclude people on the basis of a conflict they have absolutely no influence over. Apparently 69% of the British public supported the ban, but I'm afraid I was not one of them. And I'm glad that this is going to be coming to an end. Okay, so it's a couple of weeks since I talked about football and it's getting exciting the business end of the WSL. There are just three points separating the top four teams with Manchester United, yet you heard at the top with 41 points, second place Chelsea with 40, and third and fourth place Arsenal and Man City level on 38. Chelsea and Arsenal are still in the Champions League, having won their respective quarterfinals last week, which might not help them in the domestic league. That remains to be seen. While we're on the subject of Arsenal, some sad news ahead of this summer's World Cup, which is that Arsenal and Netherlands ace Viviane Miedemar has said that she will not be fit to play. Miedemar is excellent, obviously. Netherlands are pretty tasty as teams go and Miedemar's a big part of that. You might remember that Miedemar ruptured her ACL, anterior cruciate ligament, back in December last year and that is a long old road to recovery when you consider that the World Cup isn't starting until July. You might also remember that ACL injuries are really bad news for footballers and that women seem to be rather more prone to them than men, up to six times more likely, in fact, to suffer from them. And we don't know why. Of course we don't. Okay, finally, golfer Georgia Hall had a frustrating time at the LA Open, finishing as a runner-up for the second consecutive week, losing out to Ronin Yin. That'll no doubt be disappointing for the Brit, who is ranked 10th, to lose out to Yin, who's ranked 32nd. Still, that result has nudged Hall back inside the top 10, so it's not all bad news. Okay, that's all from me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, what film was Sinead O'Connor definitely not singing about when she sang Nothing Compares to You? I'm not going to keep my powder dry here. <laughs> I want to start by apologising profusely for choosing 1998's <laughs> The Butcher Boy. Now, I picked this film because I couldn't find a lot to choose from, to be honest. And who wouldn't want to watch a film starring Stephen Ray, Brendan Gleeson and Fiona Shaw, featuring Sinead O'Connor as the Virgin Mary herself? The title clearly was not enough of a clue to the horrors that lay ahead. And I sat down to watch it last night for the first time looking at the plot. Suicide, alcoholism, sexual assault and some good old-fashioned extreme violence against women lay ahead of me. But it was too late to say, lads, do you know what? Fuck it. Let's just watch Ace, Eli and Rogers of the Skies after all. And so we are where we are. Based on the 1992 novel of the same name by Patrick McCabe, McCabe also collaborated with director Neil Jordan on the screenplay. Neil Jordan, that is, who also wrote and directed the likes of The Crying Game, Michael Collins and The End of the Affair. So I did have reason to be hopeful initially. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and add in Mona Lisa. Great Bob Hoskins film, yeah. It grossed $5 million worldwide and critics mostly liked it, with newcomer and child actor Eamon Owens, who played the lead Francie Brady, in particular receiving praise, including from the Berlin International Film Festival, where he was awarded a special mention. It also won a handful of other awards, including Best Cinematography at the European Film Awards. 
And so, guys, the plot. In 1960s clones, a small town in Ireland, under the threat of communists and nuclear war, Francie Brady is a 12-year-old being raised by a mentally ill mother who later takes her own life and an alcoholic father. I think it's probably fair to say he's not a very nice child, but it's also fair to say he's not living his best life at home. He hangs out with best friend Joe, where they are living deep in their own imaginations, loving violent shit on the telly, and for reasons I never really understood, demanding money from local adult residents. Things get out of hand with Mrs Nugent, the mother of schoolmate Philip Nugent, and he takes a shit on her carpet, leading to him winding up in a correctional facility where he imagines chatting to the Virgin Mary. As you can imagine, none of this goes well. And because it's all Catholic and that, one of the fathers presiding over the facility gets a bit handsy and Francie is out like a shot, lest he air their dirty laundry in public. When he gets home, Joe is now buddies with Philip Nugent and off to posh school-like, and so no longer hanging out with Francie. Francie's dad dies, and he just hangs out with his corpse at home for a bit. (laughs) That was a turn I really wasn't ready for. I don't know if either of you remember the Bomb mum storyline on Hollyoaks, but suffice to say it. I've never really been able to eat falafel again. Anyway. Can I just say, of course I don't remember it, Jen, because I didn't know it existed. Yeah, it wasn't nice. And if my, if either Vera or Catherine, my friends, are listening, they will be pissing themselves right now because they all thought it was really funny how deeply affected I was by this story. I don't want to hear but... about it because I really like falafel. Yeah, I'm going I'm going abroad soon. So yeah, rain it in, please. Yeah, no, I'm not going to say anything more. It's It's fine. Anyway, Francie retreats further into his imaginary world and deciding to scapegoat Mrs Nugent for all of his ills he pops round and chops her into little pieces there's about another 10 minutes or so of various unpleasantries after that but you get the picture I've obviously never seen this film before though I do remember there was a bit of chat in Smash Hits magazine or whatever I was reading at this point about Sinead O'Connor playing the Virgin Mary in a film and the implication of that being that it was like vaguely comedic this film is described as a black comedy or a tragedy comedy so, had either of you watched it before, and did you find any of it funny? Mick, I'll start with you. I had never seen it before, Jen, and I'm missing my past life, if I'm honest with you. I regret having seen it. No, I hadn't seen it before. No, I don't think it's funny. I do have thoughts about it. I am absolutely gobsmacked, although, you know, as ever, there's no accounting for people and no accounting for taste, that it did so, so well in the reviews and that Eamon Owen's performance was lauded because I just thought he killed it dead for me. He just shouted all his lines. I thought he was a terrible child actor. And anything that might have been a kernel of something interesting was just lost. I hadn't seen it before, but someone had told me it was terrible. So I was really surprised when he picked it. But no, I I was expecting it to be better, obviously, because I, I like quite a lot of the films that we listed earlier. Did I think it was funny? I thought it had some funny lines in it. There were a couple of lines that made me laugh, but they were all delivered in a really sort of quick and shouty manner, so they were a bit lost. I mean, I can name specifically what they are when um, Brendan Gleeson's charging that head and they're all walking behind and he talks about how he had an, uh, a face like a ruddy apple after something, something, something. And it, and it was funny, but it was all too sort of throwaway delivered. I think the absolute fury of the gardener was probably the funniest thing in it. Then he has a line in which he said, oh, we haven't had crack like this since, like, Brendan O'Fatty rode the goat. That made me laugh as well. (laughs) But, yeah, it was pretty few and far between all the laughs, I think. I don't know that I agree that he was terrible. I think he was okay as an actor, but I just think that character is just such 
a horribly despicable character that you're sort of inclined to like him less and therefore sort of resent the performance. No, more, I take that, that on board. Sense. I think yeah. that's a good point. But also people loved him and they were like, oh, even though he's doing despicable things and you still love no, him, I'm like, like a he's a horrible, horrible little, little shit. shit. Yeah. I found it really hard to remove myself from how unpleasant I found watching this film to like look at it objectively as a piece of art, right? So I found it really hard to be like, you know, what's good about it? Like, is the cinematography good, for example? And I'm sure there were points being made about what happens when you put young people in correctional facilities or when young people aren't adequately cared for or when mental health problems aren't dealt with. But I found it impossible to get beyond how horrendous I found the plot and how horrendous I found the main character. And I wondered, do you think you are supposed to feel empathy for him? Because I really struggled. Well, I mean, can I just say, as someone whose dad is an alcoholic, I should have felt empathy for him, but I didn't. I hated him. And actually, weirdly, the more terrible things happened to him, the less I felt for him because the more awful he became. Mm. And it should be the opposite. It should be he becomes more sympathetic the more terrible things happen to him. So I did wonder whether maybe that was supposed to be the point of the film. It was supposed to ask you whether or not you could, you know, because it comes around the same time as like after the Bulger stuff. So I did wonder whether there was a point in there about child criminals or how we feel about them. But no, I mean, I just, that kid was just not for me <laughs> at all. I mean, he was horrible to start off with. Like the bit is when he's like demanding money off of Mrs. Nugent, you're just like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, so that bit, there is an explanation. That's because she's called his family pigs and he's heard it and he's like, you need to pay the pig tax. He's, he's furious on behalf of his family and he doesn't really know how to handle it. So that's what he does. It's not something he does to everyone. It is specifically her who he yeah. has now made the source of all his troubles and his family's troubles in his head because he's lost in these violent fantasy mm. worlds. And she's she's slightly different, isn't she? She's snobbish. I did read in uh, mm. old friend Roger Ebert's review, was like, oh, because she won't let him play with her son. I'm like, he doesn't want to play with him. He wants to steal his shit and beat him mm, up because he's yeah. already a horrible little boy. Yeah. Mm. I think it might even have been more palatable if his hatred wasn't so centred on a woman. Mm-hmm. That, to me, it it makes it even more, you know... Oh, great, I know this film is going to end with a spectacular act of violence against a woman because Mm. that's where this is going and I can feel it. And I do feel like the film does ask us to see it from Francie's point of view, obviously because it's narrated by a grown-up Francie. We are constantly looking at the world from Francie's point of view. And this Mm. whole thing of it sells us this idea that she deserves what's coming to her. That she deserves this. Like, oh, she's grassed him up. Yeah, because he keeps being, like, little criminal. She's Mm. done this. She's trying to stop his friendship with Joe. And it's just like, actually, no, Joe has grown apart from you because you're a little shit. And he doesn't, you know, it seems to be partly Joe's choice that he doesn't want to be blood brothers with him anymore. And yeah, and while Fancy is clearly getting more and more lost in his own troubled mind... The fact that it is just so violently targeted on this one human, this this woman. Yeah, I, I think the film wants us to understand it from his point of view and no thank you. I found the comedic element of it really difficult because I could see that it was supposed to be comedic. But I was just like, this isn't funny. I know you can use humour as a way to explore, but it didn't really explore. If If there were serious points to be made about why that boy was how he was... I don't think they made them well. 
it is an Irish film. It is mm. worth saying that. Yeah. It's not a British film. It is a, it's an Irish film and it is a very Irish film. Agreed. I mean, I don't know if people in Ireland still would joke about, you know, sexual abuse in the church, but I think they probably would because it's so entrenched. It's like a gallows humour about it. Or it was so, I mean, let's not say was because who knows with the Catholic Church. But it's got that sort of Brendan Bean feel to it, right? Where yeah, yeah. like there's nothing too dark to make a yeah. joke out of. You know the guy that talks to him like he's another adult? Oh, yeah, he's um, like, have you got half yeah. a dollar for a pint kind of thing? Yeah. yeah, that's just a very Irish thing. Mm. That's like, as in, an, it's a very Irish joke. I don't think that anything should be intrinsically off limits when it comes to humour. That's not even really what I meant. It's just like, I just didn't, I couldn't find it funny. I found the whole thing so unpleasant that I was just like, this just doesn't work. Oh, yeah, well, that's the thing of comedy, whether you're touching a light subject or a dark subject, if it doesn't hit the mark, then it's just not funny. I agree, I don't think it hits the mark. Some of the stylings I I quite liked. I thought there was probably an interesting kernel of an idea in that, in in the whole fantasy worlds and the actual, the the credits at the top. I really loved all the pop art and the comic book Mm. art, and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. But, yeah, there's just no charm in it at all. No one's charming in it. No. No. I suppose, you know, we should probably talk about the women beyond the one that gets brutally killed. I mean, there aren't really many women in it, apart from the one that gets brutally killed and the one who's the Virgin Mary. And his mum. I think his mum's actually probably the most interesting. The bit where they start referring to where she's been taken as the garage, because that's where you go for a breakdown. I thought that that's kind of a really a sweet idea of how would a kid make sense of what's happening to his mum. But because this kid doesn't seem to have any innocence at all, it's really Mm -hmm. hard to think that he would be that innocent about anything, really. And I also think when she comes back and she's in that frenzy of making cakes and cakes and cakes for her brother coming to stay, for Uncle Allo coming to stay... That's really interesting. And that is probably, for me, the kind of trudgy comedy scene that works because you could watch that both ways. It is kind of funny that she's just, there's cakes everywhere, but also you're like, she's she's not well. She's not well and it captures that. And I think they do her very well. Yeah, I mean, when one of the women in it is the Virgin Mary, then, you know, <laughs> the bar is quite high of the standardised, idealised version of women. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are good women, her, the, Vir- the Virgin Mary and his mother, who... You know, good and oppressed women and there are bad women who, like I say, she didn't really do that much. Well, she certainly didn't do enough for what happened to her at the end, Mrs Nugent. I mean, she's a snob and when she loses it at his, like, she just shouts at the house, basically, from what Mm. you can tell, and at his mum. Yeah, that's out of order to an extent, but it is because he has done stuff. Yeah. It's not without a crime to begin with. That point you made, Hannah, about it being kind of like around the time of like the Bulger case, that's the other thing I sort of thought about it, is that if it was trying to make any serious points about any of those things, it's a bit fucking sensationalist, isn't it? Because also, as you say, your dad was an alcoholic. Quite a lot of triggers in this film for everyone involved, I'd say. And, and yet, you know, most people do not go and do the despicable things that he did. I don't know. I didn't feel like it was trying to say anything serious about child murderers at all. I think it was, I think it was aimed at being just squarely entertaining and different and fantasy. You know, when he, the, there's aliens appear and all sorts of stuff. I don't know that it was trying to say anything serious. I mean, nuclear fear is quite a common theme in art. You know, the panic that was surrounded that stuff. Mm. Communists. 
And I was trying to think about whether or not the stuff that I've seen where that happens comes before or after this. Because, again, as a topic, nuclear anxiety is quite pat. It's not exactly, you know, revolutionary, is it? I just feel like it was a real lost opportunity. And I've never read the novel, but stuff like that, like you've just been talking about, Hannah... It is, Pat, but it also was absolutely a thing that affected people, particularly Mm -hmm. when we're only, like, what, 12 years after the end of the war, in the very early Mm. 60s. This town was probably, like, proper, sleepy, old Irish town. And there's still that sense of we just want to be a really tight community. I just feel like there could have been something better, but it just failed on so many levels that I actually had a bad time watching it not just yeah. like oh i'm not that this isn't for me just in a, in a whole i am viscerally disliking this all the way yeah. through but then you'd be like oh look there's sean hughes oh look there's yeah. arlo hanlon yeah. fucking hell yeah. ian harp's yeah. in it and i'm like look, the cast is incredible mm. i love brendan gleason i think he's great and actually his character is is good he's great in it ian hart his he's great in it but it's just also awful well, it's a novel, isn't it? And some book adaptations work better than others. Mm. And I think they did struggle with this. But in books, you get a character who just wanders in and he's really well, you know, rounded or whatever. And then you never see him again because yeah. it, that's what happens. But in films, when that happens all the time, especially since it's such a short film, it just seems like a, you know, a conveyor belt of Irish talent going past. Yeah. Here's someone, yeah. here's someone, here's someone, here's someone else. And nobody really gets gets to sink their teeth into anything except for this like I say I can't even work out if it's a good performance by that kid because I did I did hate that kid so it must it must have been quite a good performance because I did hate that kid I kept thinking about God Joe Pesci in in Goodfellas he's got that element of you know just like a psychopath who could go off at Mm. any moment and that's not fun to watch I don't think you've nailed it Hannah it's that he's so hair trigger that you're just watching it really tense for the next tipping of the table that he's going to do yeah but also the butcher boy why would you give that kid that kid a job yeah. in a butcher's yeah. no why would you give that kid a knife you just like no no yeah. you would not give that kid a job in a butcher's it did make me really fancy a cake this film i will say <laughs> that i watched it and i thought oh i could do a slice of homemade cake right about now yeah. where would you smear it whose house would you go and cover it <laughs> in smeared cake mine for picking this film right (laughs) i don't think i need to ask the question but shall i ask the question guys rated or dated well i'm gonna say dated but i'd also like to say it's not rated same it's dated not rated was never rated no no thank you that's my answer rated or dated no thank you (laughs) none of the above utterly horrendous right well who's next it's me next and it's just me and the next week Jen, because Hannah's off on some well-earned hollybobs. What are we watching? We're going to watch Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That's the correct noise. (laughs) I've I've been there. Devil's Tower. I've been there. I don't know what she's talking about because I've never seen it, but I'll just nod. Mm. (laughs) The thing that he makes out of mashed potato, it will make sense. Okay. Okay. Now I want mashed potato. (laughs) Standard issue for all women.